welcome to the 19th episode of the Formula E Zone podcast. My name is Jack Jordan Maynard and today we'll be reviewing the crazy Mexican E-Prix but to be honest with you, I probably say that for every intro because most Formula E races are pretty frantic and crazy. But as always, joining me is Tobias Bloom from E-Form LD. Good morning, how are you? Morning, yes, the first time actually that we're recording this episode in the morning, it's very early in the morning. Obviously, there's a small time difference. Yeah, the, the first pre-sunset podcast. I think yes. <laughs> not even the afternoon. I think every time we've done this, we didn't have any daylight because no, yeah. it's, it's always been it's always been in the evening. And today we decided um, to do it in the morning. It's nice, fresh, and the birds are still singing outside my window. And yeah, we're all quite sleepy as a result of it because we're like, oh, never up this early, which is a lie because we're both up much earlier than we have today, but um, but we're still very sleepy. <laughs> yeah, but that's just the general configuration of myself. I think I'm just generally sleepy. Uh, that's not, not, not a thing just because of this podcast. What are you usually getting up, Jack? For the English viewers, I've got my English breakfast cup of tea ready. Um, and I know we got a lot of viewers from America, so I know a lot of people in America um, drink English breakfast tea. Obviously, there's many different types of tea when you go to America. But um, yeah, we're all ready. We're all ready to discuss the Mexican E-Prix. Now, Tobias, it was just a general overview before we sort of get into the nitty gritty of it. Another crazy race, but a crazy race for different reasons. It wasn't really shunts or crashes that we were talking about. It was it was more good old fashioned racing. Yeah, it wasn't the, not your usual chaotic FE race. It was, I mean, still plenty of things happened and there's still so much to talk about in this episode, but still there weren't really these these monstrous crashes or people just absolutely losing it and crashing into each other. Um, it was a relatively... I wouldn't say tame race um, compared to FE standards, but did they behave themselves? <laughs> um, and yeah, it wasn't a Santiago Prix where everyone was just bashing into each other within the first minute of the race. Yeah, and still we saw a lot of action on track. We saw a dominant, dominant drive at the front. I, I, I really enjoyed that. No, it was it was a great race. It, obviously, it felt like a, a normal race. It did have its low periods in the middle, but you just know, even when Formula E have low periods in the middle, and it's happened a few occasions, when this happens, you know something crazy is going to happen at the end. And there was some things that happened at the end of the race, which we'll discuss, which was just beyond belief in a, in a sense, because they came from drivers that you wouldn't expect to make some sort of errors. So yeah, but we'll move on to that very uh, well in the near future, over the next hour. Now, before we talk about qualifying, I think that one of the main talking points we should talk about is Daniel Apt, actually. Because obviously, in free practice one, Daniel Apt had an accident going into turn nine, where he locked up massively, had a software glitch. There is some sort of rumour going around that um, it was immediately after he did fan boost and that obviously then came up in the race again which we'll talk about but obviously he went slamming the car didn't slow down at all straight into the wall he said it was one of the biggest impacts he's ever had in his racing career he was taken to hospital and obviously then missed fp2 in qualifying but was cleared for the race tobias to tell you what i gotta give my hats off to him because to miss all that track time and then come in in a race where you've you've missed all that track time everyone else is 
pretty much prepared. You've been taken out of the environment of a racing and being in a hospital and then come back to race. I think that's that's a good achievement just to make it to the start line. Absolutely, yeah. And especially if you look at what happened to him um, that day. I mean, nothing. He didn't break any bones or anything. But still, after a 21G impact, another sensor on the car apparently read 29Gs. If you just take the 21Gs and calculate how, how heavy he would have been uh, when he hit the wall, 1.8 tons. So imagine smashing into the wall at 200 kilometers an hour which is about 120 miles an hour weighing the equivalent of one point something tons i think 1.8 it was yeah and apparently another sensor read 29 g's he himself said 20 30 years ago i would have lost my legs he damaged he didn't destroy the monocoque luckily um but uh, he, he didn't pierce anything or Nothing moved, but the monocoque tr cracked. Yeah, he had to be extricated from the car, which is standard procedure. Um, so if you have an accident north of, I'm not sure about the number in F1, it's 18G, then you have to be extricated by a specially trained medical team, and they yeah, lift you out of the car, still in your seat, they put you onto a stretcher, into the ambulance, you go to... Uh, the trackside medical center and in Daniel's case he had to be airlifted to a hospital not because of any severe injuries but because well that's just the quickest way to get around in Mexico he had to go to the to the hospital and the quickest way to get to the hospital or to get anywhere pretty much in Mexico is to take a chopper yeah so he, he was there missed fp2 missed qualifying and then came back of course, with, with some some serious bruises and yeah, moved one or two vertebrae and yeah, it wasn't like he was not hurt and apparently he still was in pain getting home. He's being treated by, by doctors in Germany now. So the impact itself must have been really painful. Credit to the team also for rebuilding the car in, in such a quick time. They pretty much rebuilt an entire FE car in about an hour. So yeah, for Daniel it was important to yeah, show some team spirit, he said, and um, not do it for himself, but also do it for the team to participate in the race. It was clear that if he didn't feel well, he would abort the race and come back home to, to the pits and um, yeah, just don't finish, which is what he did, in fact, after a spin. Late in the race, far outside the top 10, um, he said, well, where's the point? And uh, decided to put himself and his health over a top 14 result at best. That's that's what, what his weekend was in a nutshell. Um, yeah, scary, scary accident. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I, I was a bit confused at the beginning because obviously... He's had the accident, and obviously, like most of these tracks, even at FE standards, but especially Mexico, would have had a decent medical facility. But so at the time when when the accident happened, and I heard he went to hospital, I was like, you know, normally these things are covered by the actual on-track medical center because the on-track medical center is not like it's a little time; it's like a mini hospital within a track. Like they've got so much sort of uh, materials and and things that they would need to to even like resuscitate a driver. So I, I was surprised initially 
that he went to hospital. But then when I was reading the extent of the stuff, and it was basically just to double check, make sure, and send him to, to people who could take better care and, and monitor him more. Because at the time, I was, as I thought, I thought it could have been covered in the medical centre. But as you described the injuries, which I later found out, you know, it probably was serious enough to, to go to hospital. Yeah. Um, he suspended uh, a vertebrae. That's the word I was looking for earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so from that, that made, that made sense for him to, you know, I think you should go to the hospital and have yep. it in like a proper x-ray done and... and, and, and MRI and scans and there. So, all that. Yeah. Yeah, and make sure. So it did make sense afterwards. I, obviously, at the time, I didn't know that he had like suspended his vertebrae because um, it hadn't come out. So when we, because we just heard he's gone to hospital, and I was like, okay, that's pretty serious because normally these, like, he was able to get out of the car by himself. It's not, you know, it's not one of those where the driver's telling you he's fine and he's okay. It's, it's rare for them then to go to the hospital. Yep. So, because they're normally covered by the, the medical facilities. But great job from everyone involved. Um, I'm glad Daniel's okay. And um, I suppose we can move on. Obviously, difficult race for him. Get well soon, but Daniel. But in terms of qualifying, <laughs> yeah. But in terms of qualifying, um, I want to mention Porsche. Obviously, they managed to get their first pole position. Okay, so it was Andre Lottero. Great. He did really well to get it into Super Bowl. Um, was second fastest overall in the group standings, but then put in a mega lap to give Porsche their first pole. What do you, what do you make of that? Because obviously, Porsche being a new team, alongside Mercedes, probably not been as consistent as Mercedes so far at the start of the season. But they've shown glimpses, and I think that was another glimpse of performance from Andre Lotter and Porsche in Mexico. Yeah, I'm really not sure what to think about Porsche. They, from time, sometimes they are one of the two, maybe three strongest team out there, and sometimes they're at best a top ten contender. Um, now you have to, of course, exclude Neil Jani because he was in his fifth FE race and the first two were uh, in 2017 so technically his his oh no his sixth and two of them were were three years ago uh, so technically in his in his fourth formula e race with Porsche and he of course is still getting used to the car so we kind of have to exclude him um and only look at Andre Lotterer and we know he's quick and he's shown that um but of course the driver always has to rely on on the material he's given and i have no idea how good porsche's material is uh, they seem to have a decent car obviously uh, otherwise he wouldn't have finished on the podium in in Deria or been on poland in mexico but in the race it, it, it seems like he's still lacking a bit of pace and of course, that's to be expected. Porsche is in its first Formula E season. They have practically no experience whatsoever with electric race cars. They, of course, have some hybrid experience from WEC, but nevertheless, they are still learning, and the learning curve is just like for Neil Jani, very steep uh, for Porsche. And it's surprising that they are so competitive um from my point of view um still i have no idea how and where to put them on on sort of yeah the performance range fe in its sixth season currently has porsche is uh currently p9 of 12 in the team standings i think 
they deserve to be up a little more in the standings. Um, but just in a very subjective assessment, they could be up more and further in the team standings. However, I have no idea whether Porsche is actually better than Nissan or worse than Nissan. Mercedes, on the other hand, is ranking third. And I don't think Mercedes is that much quicker than Porsche. Really, I have no idea where to where to put Porsche and what to think about them. We're now coming to the fifth race of the season and I still don't really have a grasp on... And I don't think anyone has a real grasp on how well Porsche will be performing in the last two-thirds of the season. Um, yeah, interesting topic to look at, um, but it's really, really difficult to sort of, yeah, put Porsche anywhere in, in any sort of team's ranking. Yeah, it's it's very up and down. Like, as you said, like the form has been up and down, and it, that's it's really hard to, to grasp, like, where they are. But what I thought was interesting, obviously, you mentioned Neil Yarny with him being early in the race, in his career in terms of formula and so is james collado because um mitch evans who ended up who was fastest in the group qualifying ended up finishing second overall in in qualifying you know you've got lotterer and evans who obviously have got a massive amount of now experience in formula e and they've got two rookie teammates essentially in terms of neil Jarney and james collado and obviously they're struggling compared to their two the two main drivers and I think for a team, it must be really difficult, and it must be difficult for these drivers. And I, I know because we, because you say like, oh, they're in their beginning, they're in the early stages of their Formula E career. And I know driving a Formula E car is so different. But when does it become a time when you, as a driver like Collado or Neil Yarny, if you see Andre Lotterer and Mitch Evans qualifying consistently towards the front end, and you're in the tail end of the field, like. Before you've even got going, that's got to knock your confidence back straight away. It's frustrating, yeah. Um, especially, I think, for, for Neil Jarni, because we know, and I think he knows as well, how good of a driver he he is. If everything comes together, Neil Jarni, at least a couple of years ago, was one of the best racing drivers in the world. And I don't think he lost any any talent in the meantime. Uh, Neil Jarni can be very quick. He's a rapid driver, usually. Um, but he's getting used to FE and having a teammate like Andre, who of course knows FE inside out, that has to be frustrating for him. Um, and it's, I think, not the easiest task to yeah, keep your composure in, in moments like these. Um, when you see your teammate being able to finish second in, in the first race of the season, to yeah put the car on pole if if everything comes together and you're fighting for a, a top 15 result uh neil Jani being now one of only four drivers who still haven't scored a point alongside nico miller the other swiss and both nears um yeah it has to be frustrating of course but there's nothing he can do apart from continue on learning and waiting for for his time sort of i don't think interestingly enough the situation with Pilato is is comparable because james is has been able to regularly drive into the points already he has 10 points on the board he was supposed to have put two more uh, onto it on in in mexico he finished ninth but was disqualified later on for um yeah using too much energy 
he using too much power yeah, here, he, or energy. Yeah, he, he, we had a safety car in the first phase of the race, and uh, that meant an energy deduction of, of five kilowatt hours, and he used more than the now allowed 47 kilowatt hours. Uh, so that's what, why he was disqualified. Had it not been for that, he still would have been 15th in the championship. Well, his results are better than Neil Jarni's. I said he, it's not maybe not really comparable, but it maybe is. Yeah, he's just luckier <laughs> than than uh, Neil Jarni now looking at it. Um, Evans winning a race, being on the podium for a second consecutive time, and... Collado only just being able to finish inside the points. Of course, that's frustrating, but that's what any FE driver went through in the, at the beginning of their careers. And I'm always a fan of giving drivers time to adapt and then, yeah, evaluate their performance halfway through a year or maybe going into the last couple of races or maybe after the season, although that's maybe too late um, for the teams to change anything. Um, but I'd just give both James Collado and Neil Jarni some more time uh, before, yeah, really looking at because, that performance. Because I, I wonder now how long teams will wait because the championship's so competitive now. Like I, I understood at the time, like it's so, it's so new. It is so new, this championship, and it's a completely different driving style. It's completely different techniques that you've got to learn in terms of the regen. But you've seen drivers like Pascal Verline, Oliver Rowland, who Felix Rosenquist, I know that was maybe a bit earlier in the time time frame, but who have, have just jumped in the car and been quick and, and, and have got on with it and done a job straight away. And you get drivers a bit like Gary Paffett last season who just struggled, like Brendan Hartley. You know, these are really good drivers. And, you know, they're struggling to get the ball moving. And you just, you know, Gary Paffett was ousted by HWA, wasn't kept on for Mercedes this season. And you're just wondering, well, if they can't be competitive by the mid-season, if they can't manage to work it out, then I can see teams beginning to look elsewhere for drivers. And, you know, you're only going to get one season. You're not going to get the two seasons to try and, okay, you've had your season to get used to it here's your second season, this is where, you know, it's like a quarterback in NFL, right, where you get your rookie year, where you learn, and in your second season, you're expected to perform. Whereas in, in Formula E, I don't think there's that time anymore, um, essentially, for a second driver who's new to the series to, you want them in a couple of races to be then getting closer and closer to your teammate. I think in FE, it, it, it's similar. Um, if you look at Jaguar last year, or the last two years, they gave uh, Nelson Piquet Jr. two years. He did season four with them, was reasonably successful in the first half of the year. But after, well, being, where did he finish before the Punta Ypres? Um He finished, let me just look that up. Ah, Mexico. Haha. <laughs> yeah, uh, he finished fourth uh, in season four in Mexico. Uh, and after that, nothing really good came out of his side of the garage. Uh, so that's why they yeah, sacked him halfway through last year. So they gave him a second season. And I think that's what Porsche will be doing as well. Not sacking Neil Jani, of course, um, but giving him a second season. Uh, they're playing a longer game than just looking at and evaluating drivers for, for half a year and then replacing them. 
remember next year Formula E will become a world championship and then it might be an advantage for, for Porsche to have drivers in their car who are a little bit more experienced than a rookie would be. So when FE becomes a world championship, and that's pretty much when it really matters for Porsche, um, they have two drivers with experience in the car and get going, hit the ground running straight away um, in the first race of the of the new year. Uh, I think that's what, what they're aiming for. Um, so giving him the time now, giving Jan the time now, and then approaching season seven, the first year of, FE being a world championship of two reasonably experienced drivers, I think that's what what they're going for. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's, it's going to have to be a wait and see process because, as I, th- I think time, I think it'll just be interesting to see if time is now running out on drivers, especially as you said, when we go to a world championship, like it, the stakes are slightly higher. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how long you know teams will you know will wait around because Porsche they've got such a they've got such a wealth of drivers in their program. So they can pick and choose um, whoever, and you know it'd be interesting to see you know who comes out, who could be a really good single seater driver, and who might come out if one of them's not performing, and who could actually step in and do a good job. Um, so before we just wrap up qualifying, I just wanted to well, I've so we haven't really talked about qualifying much. We've just talked about the impacts of it, but at the same time, I want to give a massive shout out to Mahindra. Obviously, the gearbox failures or gearbox problems that they had before the start of shakedown, they had to change a component within the gearbox, both. Um, so that meant a 40 plays grid penalties for um, both Verline and both D'Ambrosio. Uh, so which effectively meant they had to start the race from the back, but qualifying was still important for them. It wasn't like, you know, in F1 where, you know, you might just get to Q2 and then you stop and then you're like, okay, there's no point. Um, it was important because it actually affected the extra penalty they would have got during the race. So for example, Verline managed to qualify P four in total but I think moved up to P three. Um no he qualified P three, apologies. He did he did qualify P three, but so that meant he had a drive through penalty for the race, less of a penalty than D'Ambrosio, who was in the middle of the pack, who then had to have a ten second stop go. So credit to Verline, um a great qualifying from him. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it didn't look very well going into the weekend. You talked about them having to effectively well i mean they didn't replace the gearboxes but for the fia who only saw well they broke a seal they must have changed the gearboxes that's an immediate 20 place grid job and if you do that on both of your cars uh, as a driver on both of your available gearboxes both sides of the garage that's 40 places backwards each for both drivers um yeah so the situation going into the weekend didn't look too great for them. But then coming out and, spoiler alert, finishing into in, in the top 10 even, after these really harsh penalties, um, yeah, it's, it's a good achievement. And really, these points might come in handy uh, come the end of the year. Uh, we've seen one or two points... Yeah, being being deciding between P, I don't know, nine and eight in the champions in the championship standings, and that of course is relevant for prize money as well. Um, so yeah, really really good effort by both drivers to finish inside the top ten after these penalties. 
Yep, for sure. And the only other main talking points that come out of qualifying before we get onto the race is, you know, the Group 1 sort of struggle bus in terms of BMW and Lucas Degrassi. BMW really struggled. I was... They've had such a good start to the season and both Gunther and Sims just, just weren't able to put a, a lap together. On a track where it is Mexico, it is a normal racing circuit, so you would expect it to be fairly, well, rubbered in with, like, quotes, um, airmark quotes. But, you know, not to be as dirty as the likes of Santiago and, and Diria. It isn't, you know, an actual circuit. So I was quite surprised to see him not actually sort of progress like Sam Bird did or at least be in the top 10. They were, like, down in, I think it was in 18th and 20th, like, for BMW, which was a big shock. It was a big shock, yeah, especially if you look at where they, they finished beforehand. Um, now, Sims being able to be on pole position for both of the derail races. Max Gunther winning Santiago seems winning the Saturday race in, in Deria. It was a bit of a surprise, the lack of pace um, in at BMW in qualifying. Um, but in the end of the day, I think that also has to be down to qualifying. Of course, it wasn't as dusty as we've seen it in Santiago, but still being in qualifying groups one and two, if I'm not completely mistaken. Um, where where did... Yeah, both in group one, yeah. <laughs> Actually, both, both, both were in group one. one. And that made a difference, um, I think. Um, but that's how things are in FE, and you have to progress then from the top, I don't know, from 15th uh, to the points, or 20th from the point, yeah. to the points. Yeah, fair play, that's just how things are. It is. Well, obviously, Bird showed, as we said, mentioned right at the start, where you know he managed to make it through to Super Bowl with, despite still being in Group One. So it, you know, it was it, it was, was doable. doable yeah. Um. So a, a, a you know a better quality. You don't have to all get into Super Bowl, but you know you've got a better chance of maybe being in the top ten or in the middle of the pack. Which, okay, still not great, but at the same time, you're not fighting right at the rear. Um. But. That's pretty much it for the sort of the qualifying, so I think it's time to get on to the race. I just run down, so we had Lotterer who managed to get on pole for Porsche. Evans was P2. Verline was P3, but Don obviously was demoted down to the back of the grid, so that promoted De Vries to third. And we had Bowemi who qualified fifth, um, but then started fourth. And then Bird who qualified sixth, but then moved on into P5. So let's talk about the start of the race, because it's always just as dramatic as anything else in, in Formula E. Um... It was a clean start, I suppose, from the whole field, but it got juicy because Mitch Evans got a really good run, had the inside line um, going into turn one, so we was able to, you know, the racing, Lotterer was on the racing line, but because Evans was on the inside, he was able to pretty much, it was a bit aggressive, but he sort of locked up, but he managed to squeeze through, he managed to push Lotterer out wide, it was a bit of an aggressive move. But, Tobias, what do you think? He sort of managed to get through. Evans then went on to lead the race. Lotterer was out on the grass and fell back to fourth. Firm, decisive, but still fair. Um, I feel like it was a fair manoeuvre in the end. Uh, of course, I don't think Andre was happy about it. Um, being shoved off track in turn one when you're, when you're trying to defend P1 ain't great. But still, I think at the end of, of the day, all things considered, it is a tough but fair manoeuvre. Or it was a tough but fair manoeuvre. Um, 
we, we've seen we've seen worse. we've seen worse. That's right, and we've seen similar from Evans. Um, even Andre has seen similar from Evans. If you think back to to Rome twenty nineteen. Um, both were in the same sort of situation, Lotterer starting on pole, Evans second, both jostling for position, and then Evans just sends one up the inside, and Robert was up the inside of, of the chicane before the start straight. Um, I think these two overtakes were comparable. Um, of course, the, the layout of the turn on the corner was different, Still, Rome was just as, yeah, firm uh, is maybe the best word for it, um, as in Mexico. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think the overtake was still, yeah, in 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 the frame of being good and being not maybe clean. Clean isn't a good word for that as well, but yeah, still fair. Not clean, but still fair. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Like as I said, we've we've seen worse, and you know, I'm remembering back now to that overtake with um, Lotterer and, and Evans back. It was aggressive again. Evans nearly pushed him into the wall. I remember talking to Evans after that race, and he was like, he was praying that he he, he got out, <laughs> and he didn't he didn't hit the wall because then he knew it was okay. But as I said. You know, we've seen we've seen way more aggressive moves. You know, even think back to the last race with the Costa on Gunther, like that was just completely banzai and like Gunther literally had to come to a stop. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't on that level. So uh, to me, it was an, an okay move. There was nothing wrong with it. It was just hard racing, in a sense. But that's where it sort of started to curtail for for Lotterer. because then you know he fell back to fourth. He did try to pass Bowemi. I think it was definitely the freeze. And um, who managed to get through. And from there on, he managed to fall back. Okay, he managed to fall back because then he was attacked by both virgins from Franz and Bird managed to get past him. I think the freeze had also fallen back at this stage as well during the race because then he also, I think the freeze managed to get through because obviously in the Mercedes, it's quick, but at the same time, it's not. It's, it's race pace seems to be struggling at the precise moment. But then Lotterer hit the Mercedes and he broke his front wing. And that was basically the end because it was sparking very similar to um, John Eric Verne's back in Santiago where it sort of just came loose and was scraping across the floor causing a massive plume of smoke just like Verne's and again Lotterer decided you know not to pit they don't pit on that first lap when it's still smoking and you know he carried on and he went on that pit straight and we were like what and what are you doing and it failed basically it failed on that pit straight because the puncture it was sparked he locked up massively couldn't stop was on the grass I think so I, I just didn't understand why drivers, they have a damaged car, but they decide I'm going to continue in that hope that they can just get the, get the part off so they can carry on racing. And we've seen it happen, uh, getting the part off, sort of a comical scene. But if you think back to um, Pascal Verline, he was able to do it in Diria. He had a damaged front wing and managed to bump it, scrape it off. Uh, in in turn, I don't even remember the turn. I think turn between turns twenty and twenty one or whatever that was. Yeah, he was definitely banging it after the chicane where the start straight is. He's before yeah. the final corner on to the and, start straight. And he managed to get the part off and the piece off. And that's what drivers are are trying as well. 
Van did that in, in Santiago. He blocked his teammate in doing so, but still he tried to knock it off. And Lotterer tried to do the same. Ultimately, he managed to do it as well. Uh, he um, lost it on, on the grass exiting turn one. But still, his race was, was done as soon as, as the piece was sort of flapping around um, after, after the early contact with uh, a Mercedes, I think. Not much to take away from that race, apart from lots of frustration. Um, some more work to do. I, I'm sure he's he's still smiling and happy about his his pole run and his lap because that really was watchable. And uh, if you if you get a chance, go and rewatch his pole lap. That really was was enjoyable. Um, still, that maybe was the only good thing he <laughs> he experienced over the weekend. Um, really yeah. frustrating and to his day i think yeah because i remember like the porsche after the race they were like yeah we've got to analyze how we've not come away with points you know from this race and to be fair once the race sort of unraveled after those first couple of laps because it was fairly early on you know it was clear that laurel was never going to be able to run at the front like yes they were able to get the the qualifying lap they were able to get on pole but the pace was just not there you know he was there at the start but he fell back and you know the two in front managed to just move away effectively and yeah he was he was just stuck and he was going backwards a little bit um so it was a disappointing race for Porsche and obviously a race that provided so much hope with the pole position ended up crashing and burning so um yeah a lot for them to learn and come back in time for Marrakesh but see what they can do in time in time for Marrakesh in a couple of weeks' time. Um, moving on then, so obviously we managed to get the first safety car. So the first safety car was caused, again, a couple of laps in, uh, slightly before the Lotterer incident. But we had Nico Muller trying to overtake uh, Nick De Vries, who was, as I said, beginning to fall back at this stage. And, you know, he just got it wrong out on the outside of Turn 1, went out wide, got on the sort of the dust and the marbles, I went straight into the wall. Now, that was brilliant for the Mahindra team because remembering to the start of the podcast, they had to take those extra penalties to stop go and the drive-through. That completely negated that because they'd already taken it, allowed them to catch right back up. So they were back in the race. But safety car, Muller's incident, what do you think, Tobias? Muller's incident, oh, yeah, frustrating for him. Um, being able to run up so far in the order, Um that really look it looked good for uh, for dragon um because usually you would expect dragon to be rum rather towards the back of the top 10 um you know not being a regular point scorer and muller being able to attack um for for p5 uh, that's a good achievement already um yeah at the end it was just a driver error I'm afraid. Locked up going into turn one and yeah, missed the apex by a meter and that one meter is, is missing at the outside and they're at the exit of the corner and that's how he ended up in the wall. Um, as you say, for Mahindra it was great. They served their drive-through um, slash 10 second stop-go penalty before that happened and they weren't lapped. Um, in fact, it, was, it seemed to be reasonably close for being lapped. Um, not for Verline for this drive-through, but 
for D'Ambrosio, who, who served the 10-second stop-go penalty. Um, that could have been close um, at a later stage of the race to being lapped, um, but they weren't. And so when the safety car came out to clear uh, Muller's car off, off circuit, they were able to close up uh, back to yeah the back end of, of the field and um, yeah come back into contention for the race. Which then led for them, as we said earlier, getting those points because obviously it went, it came, it went on to be quite a race of attrition um, from here on in. Because obviously we've already got Muller out, we've got Lotterer out, so some of the drivers are already out this race, um, and we've only done a couple of laps. So and it did fall into a race of attrition for sure. Um, so I suppose what was interesting then is what I want to talk about is. Obviously, Bird managed to make his way through, so he managed to work his way up to second, passing Bawemi, who was in third. And then the DS Chick Cheaters, again, not the greatest qualifying session, obviously not helped by their qualifying groups obviously being towards the front. So, they're, again, they're trying to they're trying to make their way forward. And so at the, this point of the race, it was Evans, Bird, Bawemi, and then you had the two DS Tick Cheater cars. And then, again, their strategy was just a bit odd because the Costa is flying at the moment in that car. And at the time, he was ahead of Jean-Éric Verne, and he was chasing the Costa. But I think there was, like, Verne was in attack mode before the Costa, because it made sense for Verne to go into attack mode before the Costa, because he had such a massive gap behind him. So, and then they decided to switch. But in before they switched, the Costa took attack mode. And then, so now they're both in attack mode, but Verne has allowed the Costa through, surprisingly, to be honest with you, down turn one, but did follow the team's orders. But then within on that same lap of letting him pass, back at turn nine, the Costa's through again. He's overtaken him. And in that time, they've managed to lose about... They were right behind Sebastian Buemi at this point. They were racing Sebastian Buemi for third. Buemi's three seconds down the road because they've been wasting time squabbling with each other. I didn't understand it. What did you make of it? <sighs> what Ferrari's F1 strategists are uh, in, in F1, that's a cheater. Just team orders in FE, I think. Um, they seem to find a way to <laughs> mess team orders up every time they're out on track. Um, disaster for them. Um, similar things happened in, in the last race in, in Santiago with them trying to swap positions and then deciding, well, it, I think it's better to swap back. They did that in Mexico as well. I just don't get it. Um, da Costa was clear to, uh, quote, you can race with Jeff um, after they swap positions. And after only a few meters, he realized that he is a lot quicker than Jeff. Um, and all the while, Buemi, of course, who was racing in front of them, just disappeared into the distance. It cost them so much time. Also, there's, of course, this this psychological component to it. Um, Jeff never really had a teammate who was challenging him for, yeah, we have to talk about the number one driver uh, role uh, in that context. He had, obviously, huh, Martin Qua, who wasn't able to do anything against, well, <laughs> anyone, uh, but particular in this case, Vern. He had Stefan Zarazan, who was a good driver, and on a good day, he was able to to be a regular point to top five scorer. He he won a couple of races, um, was disqualified from from London season one, for example. Yeah, I remember that. Um, so Sarazan is a good driver, 
but still he wasn't able to challenge Jeff. And then, of course, there was ah, uh, one more driver, Esteban Gutierrez. Esteban Gutierrez. Yeah. How about him? <laughs> but, but again, it was like one of those, if we're going back to the rookie thing, aren't we? Like, he only had a couple of races, like, and he wasn't, he wasn't atrocious. He just wasn't ready. That's like, right, he, yeah. he, he was, he, he fell into the category of the Gary Paffitts of this world, sadly, who were, you know, Esteban Gutierrez is a good driver, but at the same time, you know, he made it to Formula One. He can't be that I bad. I think so too, yeah. Um, so... You know, you know, saying like Gary Paffey, he's won two DTM championships. Like, he's not a bad driver. It's just for whatever reason, you go to Formula E. It's not just plug in and play. It's 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 so different, as we were saying earlier. So it's, for some drivers, it clicks. Or for some drivers, it doesn't. It didn't really click for him in his three or four races, really. It wasn't that long that he had in the yeah. car. And then, of course, Jeff had Lotter as a teammate um, for the best part of these last few years. And Lotter was able to challenge him, but not challenge him for for the number one driver sort of role within the team. Um, it wasn't like like Lotter wasn't allowed to win. Um, but in if if they were racing half a second apart with a twenty second gap um, to the next best driver in third. I think Jeff would have had the priority to win. Um, that's just how things are. I remember, Jeff owns part of the team. He's, it's his baby, really, and uh, he's he's helped building the team, and he knows every process inside out, and overlooks n- not everything, but he knows how things are going at Achita. And yeah, uh, Lotterer was a teammate. He was able to challenge him. But I don't think he was able to sort of. He wasn't allowed to. Yeah, that's right, and that's why Jeff's throne of being number one at the team was never really in any any jeopardy. Maybe one of the reasons why Lotterer moved to to Porsche uh, over the summer. On a side note, which allowed him to become a number yeah. one. Which is which is what's happening at this precise Absolutely, moment. Absolutely, yeah. And now Jeff has Antonio Felix da Costa as a teammate, who is an outstanding, exceptional driver, a, a real talent. And yeah, uh, da Costa is able to challenge him for for that throne within the team. And of course, Jeff doesn't like that. And we have to ask the question of who will be number one driver um, come the end of the year. It sort of feels a bit like, although the circumstances were completely different, um, Fettel versus Weber a couple of years ago in F1, um, both being able to beat the other, uh, the teammate on on a good day. Um, It's fun, of course, to watch from the outside, um, but I think from the inside for the team, I mean, I don't want to be the one making decisions about the team orders. Um, Mark Preston, team principal at the Cheetah, does have one of the toughest jobs, I think, in in the, in the championship, um, because both drivers are just so ambitious, and they have the car to to become champion, and they of course both want to be champion. And to <laughs> first driver, you have to beat as your teammate, and. Yeah, that's what both Antonio, Antonio Felix da Costa and John Eric Verne are trying. Beat their teammate. And now you put the, the team order component into it. 
it's just a really messy it just leads to really messy situations like we've seen in Santiago like we've seen in Mexico um it'll be interesting to look at this for for the next couple of races um yeah i just don't get why Tachita always try to yeah influence things they maybe shouldn't influence it was clear that Antonio Felix da Costa had better pace after they they did the old swap rule and yeah I don't know he was able to reel in uh, Wemi relatively quickly um, cynically you could argue that had it not been for the team order he would have even challenged for the win in fact after they figured out who's yeah who's driving ahead of the other uh, Felix da Costa was half a second quicker than Mitch Evans on average uh, on a lap that would have still meant he would have needed I don't know five more laps to to really come into striking distance totally. and then yeah. you also have to keep in mind that Evans surely wasn't yeah giving it his all and he could have picked up the pace I think relatively easily as well um, so just don't nail me down on these these five laps, but Felix da Costa could have been able um, to to compete for for victory. Uh, cynically, you could argue that. However, I think the reason for him not being able to challenge for the win is more down to him only qualifying in in tenth. And yeah, if he manages to. That's my last note. Uh, if he manages to, um, yeah, get his qualifying back to I don't know the Super Bowl shootout. Maybe that w- that would be good for him. Yeah. If he can uh, qualify farther up the grid, he's on any day a challenger for for victory. Um, if he qualifies within the top five, let's say, uh, for Marrakesh. He is one of he has to be one of the top picks for victory there. Yeah, I was I was gonna say like the way he started this season. Yeah, you're right. Qualifying has been his issue. Like he just he hasn't nailed a qualifying lap yet, and he's he's you know he's come back in even in Santiago to when he came from like tenth on the grid. Like so, you, you're struck. You're you're already putting yourself at a disadvantage, and you you've if you've got the pace to challenge from tenth and get all the way to the front. And I agree with you. I feel like hypothetically, the Costa could have won that race. Maybe not won it, but it definitely could have been second, and maybe mounting a charge towards Mitch Evans in the in the latter stages of the race, because he had the pace. You know, he was he he passed as soon as he passed Vern. As soon as that debacle was over, he was on the way. And he passed him. See you later, <laughs> and then got straight onto the back of Bird, and 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 forced bird unbelievably into an uncharacteristic error because the costa was so quick bird went to defend at turn three and and unlike bird he, he gets it wrong and he crashes into the wall and bird being mr consistent which is you know completely odd for to see him just just crash out in the way that he crashed out and obviously that then promoted the costa into second and then he could have you know went on the charge but he sort of ran out of laps but talking about the bird situation, I wasn't expecting maybe Bird not to put up a, a strong fight because the Costa was all over him. But I wasn't expecting Bird to put it in the wall. Yeah, I think that's of course you don't put it into the wall without any any sort of driver error. Um, but also the track was 
I don't think it, it, I'm, I'm not sure if, if short of the track broke up in turn three, uh, but there were a lot of marbles offline. Uh, we saw Martin Poir crash there, we saw Stoffer Van Dorn crash there, and we saw Sam Bird crash there, um, and Andre Lotra early in the race, although that maybe was not down to the marbles, but to his front wing scraping along along the street. Um, yeah. Still, Sam wasn't the only one who, who lost it in, in turn three. Um, yeah, if, if you get offline just slightly there, the track was either breaking up or full of marbles and that of course meant that you lost all the grip you had and similar to to Nico Miller earlier in the race if you miss the apex of turn three by a meter or two of course you're you're lacking that meter or two at the at the uh, exit of the corner and uh, what's waiting at the exit of the corner that's right a wall and yeah, that's how, how he ended up uh, in the wall in, in turn three. Um, so it surely was just a bit of a driver error. He saw Felix da Costa just flying, not past him, uh, but he, he just, I mean, Felix da Costa had a lot better pace than that than, uh, did. Um, yeah, he was under pressure, of course. That maybe led to just the slightest of errors. And then once you're offline, they're still going back. And sadly, that ended his race. He was able to continue, I think, in, in ninth for half a lap. And then the front wing um, dropped and ended up under his car. And uh, he, he drove in, in into the tech boat area at the exit of the stadium. <sighs> Yeah, yeah, difficult race for for him, and obviously then it was it was a race that was going so well for for Virgin Racing, and obviously they could have had so many points because Bird was obviously running from P two, and then Fryens, through no fault of his own, was at this stage um, a bit before the race, but while the Costa and Verne were making their way through the field, this sort of allowed them to be behind Bowemi. Um the Costa and and the Freeze using their fan boost to try and overtake them, the Freeze to defend. And, you know, another software glitch, very similar to the Daniel App, maybe not identical, but very similar. And then Daniel App completely just wipes out Frines from fourth place. So a race that was going so well for Virgin Racing, just, you know, through a little, no fault of their own, really. But birds maybe slightly, but especially not Frines. It just came crashing down. Yeah, tough luck. That's how racing is sometimes, but it is frustrating, of course. Um you're running in where were, he was fifth, I think, or fourth. At that time, I think Bird was P two and Frines was fourth because Bowemi was yeah. third. Yeah, oh, yeah, so frustrating. What else could he have done? Uh, no, that was thirty points there they had in the bag if they stayed second and fourth, and they end up with zero. Wrong place, wrong time. That's how sadly is sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's happened before in Formula E, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And for Frines especially, that was wrong place, wrong time. Absolutely, yeah. Unfortunate for him. And then you mentioned on, on the final few laps that Van Dorn, who going into this race was championship leader, and again, just doing Van Dorn things, being Mr. Consistent, like, was set to finish fifth. God give Alexander Sim some credit as well um, behind him. And Lucas Degrassi, they, they struggled in qualifying, but they, you know, doing the experienced driver role, really, and ensuring their car was in the, in the points. 
But then coming into like the final lap, Sims was all over the back of Stoffel Van Dorn. And we just seen Bird crash there. And then Van Dorn effectively does the same thing. And again, obviously Nick De Vries being out of the race after the incident with Frines. Mercedes doing a really good season. It was their first race where finally the bad luck struck them. Yeah. Not sure what, what, what else to add there. Um... It had to happen. Any team suffers a major setback um, at some point throughout the year. And Mercedes will be hoping that all the bad luck they, they could get is now behind them and that they can go back to normal mode in, in Marrakesh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Terrible end to the day for them. After I mean, it looked so good um, after, I don't know, 20-odd minutes in the race. And then, yeah, being not being able to score any points with both dri both drivers, not even finishing the race, oh, that's frustrating for them. Um, yeah, I don't know. Happens sometimes, I guess. It does. It's it's amazing how this championship, the bad luck, it's 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 not something like you could say in football, like you're on a bad run of form, right? It's um, it's just bad. It just comes. It just bites you. It, you, even when you're not expecting it, it just it bites you. Like getting good luck in this series is actually like it's rare. I feel like there's more bad luck than there is good luck in Formula E. Yeah, there's either normal or bad luck. <laughs> there, there's. I mean, oh, <laughs> there's no good luck. Sometimes there's, <laughs> there's good luck, but usually you either are you have an okay day or you have a bad day. And you have to have as many okay days as, as possible. Uh, Stoffer Van Dorn usually had okay days uh, so far this season. Um, in fact, him not scoring any points uh, in, in Santiago, uh, sorry, uh, Mexico was the first time uh, he didn't score anything um, at all this year. Um, and now there's no driver, in fact, uh, who was able to score in every race. He was the only one after after uh, Santiago, who scored points in every race, and now after Mexico, there's no driver who is left without a zero points finish. And that's why he was obviously leading the leading the standings, and that's why being consistent in Formula E is so important. And you know, he he'd still be leading the drivers' title today if he managed to finish in fifth by a couple of points, but he didn't. And you know, it's now Mr. Mitch Evans who's who's leading the way and obviously for him just to just to cap off the episode and cap off the podcast it was dominant you know ever since he ever since he managed to pass Lotter into turn one he just drove away he sort of he checked out which is the phrase he checked out in Formula E terms not a 20 second advantage like maybe you get in other motorsport series but in Formula E four or five seconds that's a checkout absolutely yeah one of the most dominant displays I, I can remember in, in FE We've seen a couple of really dominant races, of course. Um, I don't know. Daniel Abt in, in Berlin 2018 springs to mind. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe aided by, by, by his teammate, Lucas de Grassi. He was quick there as well. Um, but certainly in, in the Gen 2 era of FE, that was one of the most dominant drives um, we've seen. 
he did well, and obviously coming off the back of Santiago, where you know he was on again leading from the front, took pole position, and it just went backwards. The pace wasn't there. So whatever changes Jaguar have done to get that car ready for Mexico and in a position where it can dominate um, is a really good turnaround. So they've obviously learnt from the errors that they made in in Santiago. So Marrakesh is in a couple of weeks' time. Two weeks. Tobias, you might not be with us. Um, things are getting really busy for you at E4MLD, so um, if you're not with us, that is perfectly fine. We'll have to survive without <laughs> you for a bit. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, and obviously, please remember, if you're liking the podcast, if you're really enjoying it, we're loving the feedback and that you've given us so far and and all the views that people that people are watching. It, it's, it's amazing to see the podcast growing. Um, Tobias, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's always it's always been great fun. Um, yeah, so thank you for 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 the opportunity to to be part of this. No, no, not not a problem at all. Hopefully, in the near future, when things get maybe a little bit less busy at E4MLD, um, you can you can maybe pop back on for a couple of sure. podcasts. But for the time being, enjoy. Thank you. Thank um, you. the busy time <laughs> at E4MLD. I know it is busy now coming to the European season. It's all ramping up Formula E zone as well. So I understand that it's a massive time of the season now as we get closer to the European leg of the tour. So I want to say thank you very much for everyone who's who's been obviously listening. Um, please remember to like, subscribe, especially on the podcast app. It makes a massive difference. And thank you so much for watching or listening. And I will see you very soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>